Can you catch this? Or match this? Check this direct to your spinal axis. Welcome back to Catch This, the Military Medicine Podcast. You'll recall we've been discussing medicine in dynamic pressure environments, and today we're going to continue that discussion. Now, you recall in part one, we dealt with Dalton's Law, which led us to a discussion of hypoxia. And in our last episode, we introduced Henry's Law, where we began to discuss the idea of decompression sickness. We're going to continue that discussion today. Now, I've had a little bit of a programming change in that I decided to go ahead and insert an episode today where we're going to focus on the clinical presentation of decompression sickness. And then in our next episode, we're going to continue our plan where we're going to move on to the treatment of decompression injury. And in the episode after that, we will discuss Boyle's Law and Barotrauma. But for now, let's turn our attention to decompression sickness. A decompression illness is the term that we use, or DCI, as a collective term to include the discussion of decompression sickness, or DCS, and arterial gas embolism, AGE. Now, I just want to be clear, at this time, we're not going to be talking about AGE. We're going to be focused on decompression sickness. And clinically, we divide DCS into two types, and this will be important as we enter this discussion to understand the difference. And we'll come back to this um, throughout the presentation, but in type 1, we'll be dealing with pain only or cutaneous symptoms. There won't be any neurological findings. If you do have any neurological findings, we're going to classify that as type 2 DCS, and that'll be important clinically, so we'll come back to that. Let's talk about the symptoms that we'll see in decompression sickness, and we'll start with type 1 symptoms, and as I said before, the primary symptom here is pain, and what we're talking about here is pain in the large joints, primarily the knees, ankles, elbows, and shoulders. Uh, we'll come back to how patients will describe that pain, but again, while there may be pain in the small joints, primarily large joints is what you're looking at. We'll also see some symptoms in the skin, and we'll classify these as type 1 symptoms. The first of those will be rash. This rash is a blotchy rash, which you may have seen in your pediatric experience. We call this cutis marmorata. In that setting, it's associated with febrile conditions, generally very benign in nature. But in this context, when we're talking about decompression sickness, if you see cutis marmorata, it is associated with bad outcomes. So we want to up our ante, if you will, as we pay attention to what's going on with their patient. The next symptom we'll see in the skin will be subcutaneous emphysema. And this is a result of air bubbles actually forming underneath the skin. So this will feel like rice krispies under the skin. That's how it's uh, typically described. You may have seen this in an ICU setting where you can have vent patients that have some complications and you'll see subcutaneous emphysema in those settings. But here it's just associated with bubbles and sounds severe. In most cases, it really is fairly benign in nature. The last one we'll see is some itching, and this can be very vague, and uh, patients will often describe itching. It could be pretty much anywhere. Again, any of these skin joint symptoms we'll call type 1. And let's transition to our type 2 symptoms. Here we're talking about neurological symptoms. Type 2 symptoms are generally considered more severe, so if you just think of severe symptoms as type 2, you'll probably be correct, but most of them are associated with the neurological symptoms. So some of the first ones we'll see is in the central nervous system, stroke, paralysis, numbness, confusion, paresthesia. You can see incontinence in the bladder, again, as a neurological functioning. Um, visual disturbances in the eyes, in the ear, we'll see vertigo, tinnitus, hearing loss, nausea, anything associated with neurological functioning within the ear. And finally, while not strictly neurological, certainly in the severe category would be symptoms in the lungs, shortness of breath, chest pain, and cough. Again, the one exception to the neurological rule for type 2. Now, clinically, it is very useful to understand the character of the pain that decompression sickness patients will present with. Keeping in mind that our divers or aviators who may be at risk for decompression sickness are typically engaged in other training activities that may also present 
with orthopedic injuries or pain. This pain is typically located outside of the tank top or shorts distribution. In other words, we'll see it again in the large joints of the lower extremities or the upper extremities. Primarily, we're talking about elbows and knees. The other thing that is absolutely characteristic is that this pain is very unusual and difficult to pinpoint. Patients will come in telling you that it hurts here, but when you ask them to point a finger at where it hurts, they typically uh, simply can't do it. So this pain will be very dull and vague, not only in the location, but also in when did it start on the onset. It was well, yesterday, um, I'm, I'm not really sure when, although occasionally you'll get a different story. For the most part, uh, I think it is certainly more common that you'll see patients coming to you telling you it hurts, but they can't really tell you exactly where and they can't really tell you exactly when it started. The pain may prevent full effort on strength testing, but again, that may not be that helpful because I think you'd have the same problem with an orthopedic injury. What is very helpful clinically is this idea that it is relieved often with pressure. So if you think about your typical physical exam, when you're examining a pain spot, whether it be in the knee or the elbow or, or wherever else on the body, if you push on it and it hurts, that helps you identify what the problem is. But in this case, if we push on the pain, you're getting an, a paradoxic response in that it feels better to the patient. So you're getting a little bit of relief with that pressure. Although this is a little simplistic, if you think about the mechanism of injury here and think of it in the context of you're pushing on the bubble that's causing the pain and that pain is then going away because you shrunk the size of the bubble. Uh, probably not uh, scientifically accurate, but certainly conceptually helpful to remember the nature of this. The other thing is that this pain is frequently not exactly in the joint. Now, if you're examining a knee and you find pain on the tibial plateau, you're thinking about meniscal injury. But if you're examining the knee and you've got this vague pain that is somewhere outside of the knee area, but it's it's near the knee, you know, that may be more consistent with decompression sickness pain. In bounce divers, it'll uh, more often involve the shoulders and, and typically with prolonged hyperbaric or hypobaric work, it's, it's again more common the knee. A subset of decompression sickness is that of cardiopulmonary DCS or what we colloquially refer to as the chokes. Now this is actually very rare and really not that clinically important because you just frankly won't see it that often, but it is something you need to be aware of and it results from rapid ascents from deep dives in most cases. What's different about this is that we're going to see substernal discomfort in the area of the heart within minutes of surfacing. So this is really a very much more acute and because of the severity of it, we typically would classify this in the type two category. Now, one of those doctor words, if you're one of those people that likes to memorize the names of these uh, particular signs, we have one here called Banky's sign, B-E-H-N-K-E. -E. Now, Banky's sign is essentially substernal pleuritic pain that is associated with coughing paroxysm. So you're talking about this burning sensation or this substernal pain that uh, is associated with breathing patterns and, and the patient will often have, the, have coughing fits. So that is the chokes. Uh, again, very rare, but something to keep in the back of your mind. But let's move on to the more typical scenario of neurological decompression sickness, so type 2 decompression sickness. The first thing to understand is that, that this, in fact, is the most common type of DCS. So it's certainly more common than type 1 pain-only DCS. Its most characteristic presentation is a tingling or a constricting sensation around the abdomen or thorax. Probably the most common symptoms is patchy paresthesia. Now, this is important in terms of our physical exam because unlike our typical clinical findings, 
we're not going to see the paresthesias in a dermatomal pattern here. We're going to see a patchy pattern which doesn't follow our dermatomes. So when you're doing your exam, we have to do a thorough sensory exam, and we learn how to do that in a very quick and rapid manner where we actually test the sensation throughout the whole body. And again, most of us probably omit that in our routine evaluation of patients, but in this case, it's very important that we look at uh, and actually test our sensation in, in our patient throughout the whole body across all the dermatomes uh, and looking again for these small patchy paresthesias that are associated with neurological decompression sickness. One of the things that makes the diagnosis of DCS kind of difficult, particularly in the delayed setting where we don't have immediate uh, symptoms after the dive exposure, is that these symptoms, all of them, the pain, the neurological symptoms, the paresthesias, etc., will commonly wax and wane. They'll come and they'll go, and it can be a little difficult when you think about the context of this. I think in general, if you see these kinds of symptoms and you understand the nature that this is what DCS patients will present with, our suspicion then is raised, and we're going to err on the side of treatment. Other symptoms, as, as we saw in our early studies, that you can't have loss of bladder and bowel function. And the last one sickness. is fatigue. I've seen patients that have come in where the only thing they were complaining of was that I'm just tired. It doesn't make sense. I'm too tired. I've been diving. Doesn't that make you tired? Yes, but I'm just really more tired than what I really feel like I ought to be. So, and, and that may be the only symptom. And so when we're looking at the context of the patient's been exposed and he's complaining of extreme fatigue. As you recall from our discussion in the previous episode of Catch This, we were talking about the exposure to high-pressure environments being required to produce decompression sickness. That exposure in altitude versus diving scenarios happens at a different state. If we think about the physics of what's going on here, it can help us understand the clinical context of decompression sickness in the altitude exposure versus the diving exposure. So the first point of comparison is that of the mission profile. If you think about the altitude scenario, the aviator is taking off of the surface where he's been exposed to a relatively higher pressure environment. He then climbs in the atmosphere where he's experiencing his low pressure environment. If he's up there for an extended period of time and begins to develop symptoms of decompression sickness, you can imagine that that's going to happen while he's in the air or during the mission. That is problematic, of course, because at that point, it's going to cause this individual to abort the mission. So they're going to have to land the airplane. They're going to have to call the mission off. And that has, uh, of course, operational consequences. Now, in the diving context, that happens the other way around. The exposure to the high-pressure environment is during the mission, but typically the symptoms of decompression sickness will not occur until the pressure is decreased, which will happen after the diver has surfaced in most cases. Also, in the diving context, you typically have a higher nitrogen load so that it stands to reason that you might expect to see more severe symptoms or neurological symptoms. So in diving, again, the more common is type 2, whereas in altitude decompression sickness, we'll more commonly see a type 1 or pain-only scenario due to the lower nitrogen load, the slower bubble release, and because the nitrogen load is lower, the symptoms are usually milder and limited to joint pain or paresthesia in the altitude exposure. Now, the other characteristic to keep in mind that is important clinically, particularly as we begin to talk about treatment later in this presentation, is that the descent to the ground or the landing of the airplane is therapeutic. We're increasing the pressure. We're bringing the aviator back down to a higher pressure, which can, in fact, resolve all the symptoms. So in general, understand that as you evaluate your cases, even though the symptoms may be gone now that the patient's back on the ground, he did have those symptoms up in the air. 
and that confirms your diagnosis of decompression sickness. Now, typically in altitude, you're not going to see, again, very severe symptoms or long-term sequelae in most cases while in diving. Severe cases or death or even permanent neurological damage may result more commonly. I want to switch gears for just a minute and talk about altitude decompression sickness and some of the epidemiology and that will lead us into a discussion of treatment. To begin this discussion, one of the best places to look is in the U-2 community. Now, the U-2 is a high altitude reconnaissance airplane that's been flying for a very long time. In the 50s and 60s, this was one of our key sources for intelligence, but interesting to note that it is still an active airplane and we're still using it today. So we have a lot of good data that comes from this community and a number of studies have been done. And this uh, first one we wanna look at was actually conducted in 1967 where they analyzed 950 flights, 36 episodes of DCS were found in 11 different crew members, which leads us to an incidence of about 3.8% in this particular operational environment. So this provides us our, our essential baseline for the incidence of decompression sickness. But one of the problems with that study is that we had this rule on the books that if you had decompression sickness, you would likely end up being disqualified from aviation. So there was a concern that perhaps that 3.8% was a little bit of an underestimation. So in 1996, Bendrick et al. looked at repeating that study, and this time they did an anonymous survey of 416 active duty and retired U-2 pilots, and they discovered, in fact, that it was a little bit higher, 4.2% estimated incidence. But this did reaffirm that number that we're looking at approximately 4% incidence. But taking that data a little bit further, they confirmed what we su suggested earlier, that the onset of these symptoms was usually during the flight, and then, in fact, they did resolve on descent in 70% of cases. Importantly, about 12.7% of these aviators did alter a flight profile or aborted a mission as a result of decompression sickness symptoms. So the point of this data, of course, is that this is an operationally relevant condition, and particularly in this community. Talking again about the symptom distribution in this aviation population, joint pain was seen in 85.6%, and skin manifestations seen in 24.9%, with only 17 percent of cases showing neurological symptoms at all. That's just data to back up the discussion that we've had to date. Now looking at the severity distribution, we'll see similar ideas in that 56% of cases were reported as mild and 10% of them reported as only slight. So only 9% of the cases were reported as severe as defined by disrupted ability to perform the normal duties. Uh, the remaining 25% were, of course, reported in the moderate category. Now, as I mentioned to you in the last episode, the vast majority of decompression sickness cases, though, do, do not appear in actual flight, as we've seen in the U2 community, but rather in the training environment. And, and what you see here is the profile of our typical altitude chamber flight. These flights will last approximately an hour. They begin with a 30-minute denitrogenation period and a 5,000-foot ear and sinus check. The purpose of that, of course, is just to give everybody a chance to verify whether they can, in fact, uh, equalize their ears, and if they can't, they'll uh, pull them out of the chamber during the denitrogenation period. But then they'll normally ascend the altitude up to uh, 35,000 feet, conduct a 30,000-foot hypoxia demo. They'll move down to 25,000 feet, stay there for about uh, 10 minutes or so, and then back down to 18,000 feet. So we jump up to a pretty high altitude, primarily to allow the trainee the opportunity to experience pressure breathing at that high altitude. Really, relatively speaking, very short exposures 
but yet we do see a number of decompression sickness cases, and that's what we're going to talk about as we go through these next few slides. In 2002, one of my colleagues, Merrill Rice, neurospace medicine specialist down at the Naval Operational Medical Institute, looked at the altitude chamber experience with the intent of describing some of the symptoms and epidemiology of our training candidates in our altitude chamber training program. And if you look at this, you'll notice that there is a significant gap between the most common symptom, paresthesia, and everything else, which ranges from vestibular disturbances to headaches, fatigue, weakness, nausea, vomiting, et cetera, all those things that we've talked about earlier. In this population, 41 cases that reported paresthesia with only eight and below reporting the other symptoms. What that gives us is the opportunity to really reach for one high yield bit of physical exam. And it underscores the importance of doing a good thorough sensory exam on your intake or evaluation of your patient that you may be concerned about with decompression sickness. One of the questions that often comes up in the discussion of decompression sickness is what is the relationship between the altitude of exposure and the likelihood of developing decompression sickness. So in 1990, Dr. Kumar did a meta-analysis looking at the literature of case reports to answer that very question. And if you look at the table presented here, what you'll notice is that in fact the correlation really isn't that good. Certainly there were cases as low as 16,500 feet. There were cases at 27,000 feet. And we had risks of decompression sickness ranging from 3% to 26% for any of these altitude exposures but certainly no linear relationship. So what that sort of leaves us with is the idea that perhaps there is a threshold effect, but we can't necessarily say that the higher we go, the higher our risk is. And with that, I'm going to close for the day. We'll continue our discussion of decompression sickness on our next episode as we move into the treatment of decompression injury. So until then, keep reaching for excellence, and we'll see you next time on Catch This.